Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 13. And I'm going to dismiss the Spanish congregation and I think Kid City's already gone, right? All right, you are dismissed. I'm going to speak a message to you this morning on uh, loving our church family together. My clicker is not working again. Go ahead and advance it there. If you could, Caleb, that'd be great. To the next one. Let's read this passage together in John 13, verse 31. <clears throat> when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, <clears throat> that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, one for another. So I want to talk to you uh, today about the greatest love of all, and we are created to love and be loved. I don't know if you guys like Whitney Houston. I have a Whitney Houston Spotify channel. I sing Whitney Houston songs in the shower. I try to be Whitney Houston in the shower. Um, that's the only place I can like really belt it out. Yeah, and one of the songs I love to sing is Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. The problem is, it's a really terrible song when you look at the lyrics, because she says the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself, and uh, nothing really can be further from the truth. I think I get the heart behind it. I just would have loved to talk to Whitney just to kind of tweak a few words there. Uh, you can still sing the song, even though it's heresy, um, but I actually want to talk to you about the greatest love of all. We were created to love and to be loved. This desire was placed into us at creation. Uh, we, it was stated that it was not good for us to be alone. Why is it not good for us to be alone? Because God himself is not alone. God lives in community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we experience a loving community, it creates, uh, it transforms us. It creates a sense of belonging and safety and identity. So this commandment uh, to love is not just another to do in the Christian life. It's actually the lifeblood of our faith and of our being. We are in this series where we're walking through the three loves. We just spent three weeks on what does it mean for a covenant community to love God together. And uh, we had three sermons just camping on that with Juan's uh, great message last week. Uh, this week we're shifting into what is it to love our church family together. And we're going to spend three weeks just talking about loving each other. And then we'll go into the third, love. I was acquainted this week with the story of Antoine Fisher. This man was born in an Ohio prison to a teen mom. He was placed in foster care, moved around to different foster care facilities, was abused in every possible way, went to a penal institution at 14, where he remained until he graduated from high school at 17. Uh, he got emancipated, but he was homeless, living on the streets of Cleveland, Ohio. Somehow somebody talked to him about the Navy, and he entered the Navy, and that completely changed Antoine Fisher's life. See, Antoine never really had experienced love. And it was in the Navy community that he actually, uh, his anger started to explode of all the things that happened in his childhood. And the, the man who was over him saw it and said, you need to go see a, a psychologist. So when he went and uh, saw the psychologist and he started to process all of this stuff, Antoine began to change. And his buddies in the Navy, his boss, his psychologist became the first real loving community 
that he had. He served for 11 years, and he was awarded ribbons and medals for great service, humanitarian service, sea service deployment, three bronze stars, and uh, finished as uh, chief petty officer by the Master Chief Petty Officer of the U.S. Navy in October 2009. As I read his story, and I'll talk a little bit more about him later on, I was actually seeing this really stark contrast between when love is absent, what does it produce? And when, well, when love is there, what does it produce? Because this belonging, this desire to be loved is a fundamental part of being human. It is hardwired into our brains. MIT just came out with a study that said we, we crave interactions in the same region of our brains where we crave food. Do you realize that? You crave interaction with people as much as you want lunch. And you say, well, I'm an introvert. There's no difference between extroverts and introverts. We all crave that interaction. Another study showed that we experience social exclusion in the same region of our brain where we experience physical pain. You know, the broken heart, when you have a broken heart in relationship, it's actually because you're experiencing true pain. We long to belong. You know, a lot has been made about, you know, these things and how terrible they are and how addicted we are to them. But if you actually think beyond the device, what is it about? I can divide my device into three categories. It is entertainment, information, and connection. That's, that's, you can divide all my apps into those three buckets. And we can, we can rail on the entertainment side, uh, but the information stuff is super valuable to me. But you know what I really love is the connection piece, and I actually think that's a really great thing. I think it's awesome that we can connect and like uh, text each other in the moment and communicate uh, across these devices. I mean, when I grew up, folks, we had a telephone. You know what a telephone is? Like, and it sat on the wall, and there was one in the house, and it had a cord, right? <laughs> and when you didn't want someone to hear you, you had to peel that cord and stretch it as far as you could stretch it into the bathroom so you could actually have a conversation. And if you didn't have money or you were way out in the country, you had a party line where like 10 homes had one phone line and you had to give up the phone, right? So I think it's a whole lot better to have these things for connection. And actually, you know what? I enjoy connection. I connect with my small group via this phone every week outside of that. That was not possible back 50 years ago. So I, I think we, we have that longing, and uh, we love them. I mean, the problem is now that we actually sit down and have face-to-face -face interactions at dinner, and people pull out their phones, right? We have now, like, missed, like, what's right in front of us. Love makes you put down the phone and listen. So this is how God created us. But the problem is the fall distorted loving community. The fall distorted it. We actually have become rabid self-lovers. There's a documentary out that's, that's four different episodes called The Century of Self, where it's really talking about how marketing and the economy has all made us just become consumers and elevated all of our needs and wants and desires, and it's just formed us and shaped us. I actually like this book in my study, The Selfish Society, How We All Forgot to Love One Another and Made Money Instead. Is that, is that not the picture of our world? We can't fathom a vision of the good life that doesn't get us what we want. University of Michigan researcher Sarah Conrath uh, was studying uh, college kids for 10 years. In the last 10 years, um, empathy, which leads to altruism, has dropped with college students by 40%, percent 
well, narcissism has surged. We are losing our love for other people. I was listening to a message by John Mark Comer, and he said, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct, meaning God used to be the one that was sacred. Now the self is sacred. Just as in an earlier time, it was, right, it was never right to deny God. Now it's never right to deny yourself. The greatest love of all is for you to love yourself. But the problem is, uh, we have become self-lovers, and we've also then become more isolated from our communities. I'm going to ask you this in your community groups to talk about this, but since COVID has happened, do you, we were all isolated. Do you, do you think that that changed you? I was talking to my CG this week, and it says, yeah, I actually desire less social interaction than I did before COVID. I never felt that way. Like it actually pushed me further into my hole. It's, it, it's, it's in my own heart. I think we have more talk today about boundaries than we do about brotherhood. right? We have, we have more talk about how to stay away from people so they don't mess us up than really leaning in and loving the world. Uh, Namika Agachukwa is a lawyer in Nigeria, and he wrote an article, and I just thought it was it's a long quote, but I really wanted to share it with you because I think he nails this. We for, he talks about what's happened is we used to live as groups, and then every technological advancement in the world took away from the group. We didn't need the group anymore. You used to have to have the group to survive, but in some sense he says, we have survived. We've made it. We don't really need the group and the final nail in the coffin, he says, was the, was the internet and smartphones. We forgot about our next-door neighbors, having replaced them with the intrigue of chatting up a, a username or Twitter handle whose owner we, we may never get to meet. We handed the reins of parenthood over to faceless apps and let them dictate the value of human life to our children. We didn't become bad or broken or selfish overnight. We just got carried away by this belief that we didn't really need each other and by the delusion of being connected to the bigger picture through our palm tops, Forgetting, of course, that it is the details of the smaller picture which make up the bigger whole. We began to prioritize quick chats over the affectionate touch of a friend's hand. And taking online surveys have accrued more value than sharing our struggles with family at the dinner table. We began to mistake emojis for human feelings, and we forgot that likes aren't actual smiles and that they never will be. And here's the challenge. The challenge before us now, he says, is simple. We need to rediscover the value in our human and communal connections. We are as advanced as we've ever been, but also collectively as sad and selfish as we've ever been, and it's high time we did something about this. We need to redefine our values and describe what happiness means to us. And to think this is not ha has, has not hit the church hard would be a mistake. Comer talks about Project Self a lot. The church is really designed to encounter Project Self. But Project Self today is sold so strongly, I'm actually not sure the church can hold it back without a more radical type of commitment. That is why I think to commit yourself to a church these days is countercultural. To agree to submit yourself to a group of 10 people on a weekly basis is now actually considered radical. I think being a CG is radical today. That doesn't sound radical to me. Just, just listen. If you were to talk to a friend who wasn't churchy and didn't understand the language of church in small groups, I meet with the same group of friends every week for two hours. Then we see each other usually once a week, and we also correspond during the week. That's my group of friends. I think people are shocked because I don't think anybody else has that rhythm in their life. 
that you dedicate this time. It is a radical move. So um, I'm actually going to play you a clip here from the movie of Antoine Fisher because I actually want you to see the stark contrast between the unloved life and then what community actually offers. Because after several fights, he undergoes counseling, and if you watch the movie, his psychologist, uh, Denzel Washington, is the one who says, you actually, to start dealing with some of your anger, you need to actually go back to the place where you were left alone, and you need to go find your roots. And so this, this is a long clip, but I want you to watch, and I want you to kind of think through this paradigm of isolation versus community. Go ahead, Caleb. That's Johnny. No. It's Antoine Quentin Fisher. Who's Antoine Quentin Fisher, Eva? That's my firstborn son. some meat? No. Why'd you never come for me? Didn't you wonder where I was? And what I was doing? Or what I'd become? Even if I was still alive? taking care of myself. I have. I've never been in trouble with the law. 
credit, hundreds of bucks, written poems, painted pictures, traveled the world. I serve my country. I speak two languages. And I'm working on the third. Never fathered any children. I've never done drugs or even smoked a cigarette. to dream about you. My mother, my mother, what you be like? How you look, your voice, and your smile, even your scent. For all these years, I wondered about you. I dreamed me on the way to school each day I imagine you were just around the next corner when I get there you'd be there and in my mind you was always there you just couldn't find me so I raced to the next corner Take me home. I'm a good person. I'm a good man. Wife, too. How you doing? Good looking. My dad named me after your father. <laughs> 
my brother Ray. What's up, dog? What's cracking, man? Hey, y'all. I'm your cousin Jason, man. What's up? All right, boys. Open up. I love that picture of what what isolation and lack of love looks like and then the power of love and the power of welcome. And I know I talked about Project Self and what happens when we make selfish decisions, but I, I, want you to, I want to leave you with the hope that Jesus actually redeems selfish and isolated people into loving communities. Part of the gospel of redemption is moving us away from Project Self and us into a community. And I would hope that the church would exemplify what Fisher's extended family exemplified was family and food and welcome. This is actually the core of church. In an isolated world, this is the way we do it. And why? Because we actually follow in the footsteps of Jesus. In the passage we read, uh, talks, Jesus is actually talking to the disciples there in that address from John 13 and on, and he's giving them kind of his final thoughts. And in that, Jesus had a small group. Jesus actually transformed the world through his small group. So he says in that passage in John 13, a new command I give unto you, love one another as I have loved you. It's a new command. What is new about this command? Because we know the the Bible did say love God and love your neighbor. He says a new command I give to you, love one another. He's talking to the group. He's saying the way we've walked for the last three years and the way you've seen me love you, I want you to do that to each other. What is new about that? Well, First of all, it's a new focus. Love one of those I have loved you. The last time we talked about loving somebody besides God, it was the Good Samaritan passage, right? Where he loved a stranger on the side of the road who was hurting. Jesus is changing from the stranger narrative, and now he's saying it's to the, it's to the new family of Jesus. 
Galatians 6.10 that says for believers, let's do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. That there ought to be a love between the people uh, that you do church with that's different than your love for neighbor. There's also a new pattern. He says, love, uh, he was saying, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So you had to look at the pattern and say, how do I love my neighbor? Let me think how I love myself. Yeah, that I would love that for my neighbor as well. He's actually changing and saying, it's not love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's love each other as I have loved you. This, this made me then wonder, how did Jesus love them? Because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. Because as I have loved you, I read through all four Gospels this week and tried to find every time where there was an interaction with Jesus and the disciples. In about 80% of the Gospels is Jesus interacting with the world. But when you take all the things, and I just made a list of them, and I want to kind of give them to you. And if you're going to take notes today, I would actually take notes on these things. I'm going to blaze for them quickly. How did Jesus actually love them? And what was he telling them to do? I saw first in John 1 with Andrew, he welcomed them into his life. They said, hey, uh, uh, what seek ye? And they said, Rabbi, where do you dwell? Jesus said, come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and they abode with him that day. He welcomed them into his life. In John 1 verse 47, he saw Nathanael coming to him and he said, behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. And he said to Nathanael, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Jesus saw them and called out their good character. Three, he had a vision to see them grow. In Matthew, he's walking by the sea and he saw Peter and Andrew. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I, I have a vision for you in your life. Let me ask you this. In your CG and in your church, do you think of church that way, where your job is to love people this way, where you see what God has for them? Fourth, he was with them in difficult times and brought them peace. We all know of the storm and the waves beat on the ship. And he was in the back part of the ship asleep on a pillow. But he rebuked the wind and said, peace be still. Jesus was the guy bringing peace to the group. Then he identified with them even at a loss to his reputation. Remember when Matthew, he said, come and follow me. And then he went to Matthew's house. And they said, why are you eating with publicans and sinners? And Jesus didn't get up and walk away to try to save his reputation. He says, no, I've come. I've come for the sick. He openly declared his love for them. It was greater than his biological family. You know, they came knocking on the door at the dinner, said, your brother and your mother are outside. And he said, the, 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 my family is right here. Can you imagine how empowering that was to realize that, that the love he had for them was deeper than blood? He called them into mission. He loved them to say to them, hey, I want you to go out and I want you to preach the gospel out in the villages. And I trust you. He didn't go with them. He called them into mission. He believed they could do great things. When, when Peter falls into the water, he goes, why did you doubt? <laughs> he actually believed Peter could have done it, right? We all need someone like that who believes that we can do great things. He spoke into their calling. You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. He disclosed his secrets to them. There was a time where he said, hey, I, I'm going to tell you guys some things here. He said that in Matthew 16, but pretty soon I am, uh, I, I don't want, I'm going to be going somewhere, but you can't tell anybody else. So he gave them his, his inner heart. He comforted them with his presence. John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. I, I go to prepare a place for you. And by the way, I'm going to leave a comforter with you. He calmed their hearts when they were afraid. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Is this the presence you have in church? This is how we actually love the way Jesus loved. He, in John 15, he calls them friends. I'm not, you're not, I'm not your master. I, I am your friend. I, you, have, you know everything about me. He specifically prayed for them, John 17. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that the Father has given me, for they are yours. This is just my perusal of the Gospels on how Jesus actually loved. And I think part of the covenant community is we say our job is to love the way Jesus loved his disciples, and we do that primarily through our small groups. Now, that can happen on Sunday morning, and I hope it does. But the amount of interaction that we have personally and the, the depth we dig into his lives is far deeper in our groups. And then the passage says this, it will have a new impact. This is how the world will know that we're followers of Jesus. Think of a wild thought that is. If you just work on radically loving the dozen people around you the way Jesus did, the world will take notice. Why? Because you can't find that kind of loving community hardly anywhere in the world. But you pepper a neighborhood and a city with people that do that for each other, it can change the world. A covenant community of people who love each other this way is attractive and it's transformative. We actually believe here that nothing would heal communities in this neighborhood and country more than small groups of people who just love each other the way Jesus loved the Twelve. We believe that. Francis Schaeffer said, Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. So then lastly this morning, this covenant community loves our church family through our community groups. Where did community groups start? It's actually the, the earliest we can trace it is to 1738 with the Wesleys, the Methodists. And John Wesley was invited by his brother to a little small group called the Holy Club. And they showed up there and it so ignited his heart that it launched Methodism. And they said it was an inextinguishable blaze. Think of this. The small group movement started in 1776. 2% of Americans were Methodists. 65 years later, 34% of Americans were Methodists. And it happened through small group ministry because there was such radical love and transparency in that. They valued face-to-face -face community, accountability, and they empowered amateur leaders, it's said in the book, to just go and lead these groups. And if you were actually to join a small group in Methodism, here were the original entry questions, if you were going to be able to join it. Is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Number two, has no sin, inward or outward, dominion over you? Three, listen to this question. Do you desire to be told your faults that we should search your heart to the bottom? <laughs> Try that one on Wednesday night in your small group. Is it your design and desire to be entirely open so as to speak everything that's in your heart without exception, without disguise, and without reserve? This is what changed the world, was this type of Christian community. So I want to I encourage everybody here to lean into that space to love and to be loved. I was reading a book here on community groups called The Search to Belong by Joseph Myers, and he talks about there's four different levels or spaces that we actually have in our lives um, and here's how he kind of defines them, and I think that's how we should define them as well. So you have the public space, right? This is like, if you, if you identify with a group, right, then, and it can be a super large group, it can be a, the AARP, uh, you know, I, 
I'm a Packer fan, and, and, and my family, we flew up to the Packer game last weekend, and much to their embarrassment, I was going down the center aisle of the airplane on blast playing Green Bay Packer songs. Uh, but then when we landed in Green Bay, I mean, it was family, right? Uh, that whole town was green, and we got in the stadium. Like, we were all identified as a group. We publicly identify as Packer fans, and we just hate the San Francisco 49ers even more today than we did a week ago. But, um, you know, we felt at home. We identified with that group. The second circle is the social group. This is your small talk group. And there's actually nothing wrong with the majority of relationships being this way. It's your small talk group. It's your social interaction sphere. Uh, it's, it's, I didn't know many of those 78,000 people in that stadium, right? But probably in this town, I have a couple thousand people that I can have small talk with. That's my social sphere. Then there's the personal side. This is more what I think like they have access to my life and I know them and we, we are, I would consider them friends in my life. And then there's fourth is the intimate. This is what they call naked transparency. You probably only have three to ten people in your whole life that actually get into the intimate space. He calls them refrigerator friends. They can just, without knocking, walk into your house, uh, not announce themselves, and walk to your refrigerator and eat food, and you just think that's fine, right? That's a refrigerator friend, right? you got a dozen of those in your life. Now, Antoinette does that to everybody. So uh, she basically saying, I, I am an intimate friend with you. The sad thing to me about the American church is I think most people view church as the public and social sector. Oh, yeah, I go to that church. Yeah, I'm part of it. And yeah, I can have small talk with a lot of people. That's my church. We are not describing church that way here at Providence. And church, I think the small group is what actually moves into the personal space. But do not put the weight of your small group ahead of you in the intimate space. You'll kill your small group if you think those are going to be your 12 besties in the world. Right now, now perhaps inside your CG, God gives you one or two close friends, and you are, have naked transparency with them. That's fine. It'd be great if your social sphere was was made up of believers that 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 had the same values as you. But we want to create the construct of getting beyond Sunday morning social ability into that personal and intimate space. This is the only way I really see in the church where the intention is to commit yourself to some friends where the relational connection is so strong and the intimacy is so deep that we can actually live out this verse. Just being kind to people in a Sunday morning service, I don't think it's going to get us there. We have to get to know each other and get to know where people are at. So God has placed me in this CG for 15 years, and it's a huge blessing to my life. And I just view every person there as people God sovereignly placed in, that, in my group to love me and for me to love them. And God has given me friends as well. But I want to close with simply one more clue to understanding this command because there's actually a new standard. John 13 says, A new command I give to you, love as I have loved you. So then I looked in the rearview mirror and I looked at everything that he did to love his disciples. But actually in John 15, he actually says the exact same words, but he's actually looking through the windshield. And he says this, Love as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is the new standard. You don't just do it until the Good Samaritan is in the inn with uh, health care and lodging. No, you actually say in your heart, I am going to the max with these people. This is the full definition of as I have loved you. 
And I think small groups are the best environment for you to get to know people, not by your own choosing, and learn to sacrificially love them and lay down your life for them. And by the way, you don't have to be besties to do this. Now it says, what do you mean by lay down your life? I think we all have that image in our head like, would I take a bullet for somebody? Best I can tell in the last hundred years in church history, nobody has ever taken a bullet for somebody in their small group. Now maybe, right? Right? I mean, it's just it's a it's not what it's really talking about here. Would you take a bullet for them? You probably don't even know until the bullet's starting to come your way, right? Hopefully we would take a bullet for each other. But that's not actually the question I think you need to answer. Laying down your life, what is your life? It is your person. It is your presence. It is your time. It is your resources. It is your listening ear. It is all that God made you to be. Are you laying down your life for your friends? I hope we take a bullet for each other, but I really hope actually every week we will just do, we will ask ourselves when we come into our our circle of relationships, God, show me how to lay down my life for somebody. This happened in our group this week. We say, hey, somebody's not with us, they're hurting, and we also, let's lay aside some time to write some thoughts, to minister to this person that we love. This is laying down our life uh, because you can just go up into this, this John passage and Jesus sat there and just washed their feet. We make a huge deal out of that. But honestly, guys, that's not really that big a deal. To wash someone's feet takes three to five minutes and perhaps a little bit of ew, right? It's not hard to wash someone's feet. Jesus is not doing it as a supreme example of some great heroic thing. It's just every week, just go wash someone's feet. It's three to five minutes and just love them and lay down your life for them. If you are listening and you're doing this church thing right, you're never short of having a list of how to lay down your life. Jesus changed the world through investing in his small group and giving his life for them. And it is transformative because it is infused with the Spirit's power. He is in the midst of Christian community, both talking to us, calling us in to love one another. I close with Antoine Fisher at the end of the story. He's, he's now a, a writer and a poet and speaker, uh, and he's done a number of movies, number of books. But he basically talks about his visit with his mother, and he says this, In the place inside me where the hurt of abandonment had been, now only compassion lives. See, this isolated boy, love transformed him. And then what does he do? He's now coming into his mom, and it's, he's, he's actually able to step outside of himself and say, I can't even be mad at her. I just have a heart of compassion to her. And now we're sitting here watching a movie that's 20 years old, seeing the testimony of what love can actually do. So I want, to, I want to hold that out to us as we think of loving our church family together as an example. Jesus is with us, and he wants to transform us through this loving community. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, Lord, I just, I just know I need your grace in my life to remind me of how to love the way you loved. So we thank you for the fact that we get to sit here this morning with a group of people. Lord, in the testimony from East Africa, um, Lord, we just, we just lay down our lives for that right now. Lord, the, the needs that we heard, the, the transition of the cooks, like, Lord, just an opportunity for us to love like, like you've loved us. And Lord, may you just spark a love movement here that would be radical.
and by your grace be a place where the, the Antoine Fisher moms could come and they could actually hear, welcome, welcome. And the heart can begin to heal through the power of Christ-like love. We ask this in your name, amen.